Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The result of Labour's policy is seen in the health of the people, especially of the children and of the babies. That all the tides of history are flowing in our direction. We are not beaten. We represent the future. The Britain that is going to be forged in the white heat of this revolution will be no place for restrictive... The trade unions are vital to the Labour movement. It was the trade unions that created the Labour movement. I've seen more press coverage since we've been active on the subject of black involvement in Labour politics than I've ever seen before. And you end in the grotesque chaos of a Labour council, a Labour council People don't know what the Labour Party is about at all. A new dawn has broken, has it not? If anyone says that politics can't make a difference, then look at what we have achieved together. People feel that change is coming. Ed Miliband has a dream. He wants to revive Labour as a mass membership party. I want to use your talents, whoever you supported. Ed Miliband has stepped down as Labour Party leader. The announcement comes after a devastating night for the party. Jeremy Corbyn, 251. Come with us on that journey. The Labour Party is too broad a church at the moment. You'll be inspired. There are People who disagree with me for reasons that they say are to do, say, with Iraq. You'll be occupied. But actually are to do with the fact that I won three elections to the Labour Party and they didn't like it. But above all, you'll be part of it. Hello and welcome to the Beginner's Guide to the Labour Party. Uh, my name is Holly Rigby. I'm a secondary school English teacher and um, I have just joined the Labour Party two months ago, have a, having never been in a uh, political party before and I'm interested in finding out some more about what that means. I'm Jeremy Gilbert. I'm an academic and, and sort of commentator and activist. Uh, I've been a member of the Labour Party since the late 80s, although not very active at a kind of local level for a long time. I've been involved with organisations like Compass, which have done a lot of their work inside the party. My name is Mark Cook. I'm one of the officers of Compass. I've been a member of the Labour Party since 1976 and pretty active throughout most of that time. I've been a councillor and held most of the officers in the party during that period. Hi, I'm Sue Goss. I'm a writer and a policy advisor. I wrote a book about the early history of the Labour Party at local level from sort of 1919 to 1982, uh, and I'm active in Compass, which is working across political parties on the left. Um, so I joined when uh, Corbyn became a candidate um, and I registered as a supporter um, to uh, nominate him to become the leader. Um, and after Corbyn was elected, I decided that I wanted to join the Labour Party um, and become active in supporting, um, obviously, Corbyn as the leader, but more widely, like his policies and his politics um, and making that a reality. So... Yeah, but I don't really know um, that much about the Labour Party. I've joined this kind of uh, monolith and not really know anything about it. Um, so the first question is, what is the Labour Party? 
So the Labour Party started in 1906 as the Labour Representation Committee, and then it was an alliance of lots of different organisations. It didn't start off as a single mass party. And in that alliance was the Independent Labour Party, which was a political party, the cooperative movement, the trade unions, the Women's Cooperative Guild, all sorts of different organisations. So it was a social movement when it started off. And then over the years, I mean, actually it stayed a federation technically right the way through until it became a mass membership party when some of the voting systems changed quite recently. I should remember, it didn't actually have individual members in the early decades. You couldn't, you couldn't actually join the Labour Party as an individual. You had to be a member of a trade union or one of the organisations. But by about, um, after the First World War, it became a direct membership organisation and it's gone on since then. But I think there's always been a tension around to what extent the Labour Party is primarily and overridingly a vehicle to create to enable parliamentary representation for the for the labor movement so i mean what, even when the lrc was first set up there was some tension between people who thought well essentially that the point of it was to get people representing the labor movement into parliament and it was to create a parliamentary labor party and a framework of support for that and those who saw that that as part of its work but saw it as a much broader uh, movement with a social project a broader social project and i'd say that tension's always been there mm-hmm. And it is still there. It's probably fair to say it's also been very broad political as well. Even at the beginning, uh, it, it had what was called the Social Democratic Federation, which despite its, its name to modern years, was uh, a Marxist organisation, uh, essentially. I'm not sure if Revolution yeah, it was. Or, no, yeah, yeah, it was. And they had the Fabian Society, which existed at that time as well, and people who were unashamedly reformists. So it's always had that spread, and it was a mistake to think that this has changed over the years. It's just changed in, in detail, but the, the principle's always been there. And there was nobody at that stage really speaking for working class people because right. the Liberals tended nevertheless to be, you know, come come from relatively well-to-do backgrounds, mm. generally speaking. And and they suddenly, re- you know, strikes and, and, and uh, industrial um, action could get so far, but trying to get, you know, a reduction in working hours, trying to make health and safety, protect people from, you know, being injured in factories, mm. trying to reduce the hours that people were working in the mines, all those things required legislation. So in the end, people felt that without parliamentary representation, they weren't going to be able to improve mm. working conditions. And I think that um, most people have some understanding that some of the biggest achievements in the Labour Party um, were kind of around the time of its formation. But could you talk about some achievements from those kind of earlier years that people might not have a sense of? I mean, the very first achievements were in local government because Labour took over a lot of local councils a long time before it ever got uh, became the national government. Um, and round in this part of London, um, in, in Bermondsey, which is, which is where I know well, the local council w- went Labour in 1919 and was building council housing way back then, set up a health service on a local level, um, set up social services, you know, services for... Um, uh, mothers and babies, all sorts of things that had never been heard of, had created a sort of little local welfare state. Mm. And around the country, Labour councils were doing things like um, create, uh, um, electrify. So Bermondsey had its own electricity for way before you know there was anything national. Um, there was a municipal bank, I think, somewhere in the Midlands. There were all sorts of things got set up that, at local level well before there was a national government. Mm. Um, you talked about how the unions played like a, a quite a central role in the initial setup of the party. Could you tell me a little bit about um, the unions kind of influence from then up until now? I think it's clear from that history. I mean, the, 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 I mean, the unions were the main constituent element of the party. So it's always been a real, you know, it is it is a piece of propaganda and a piece of rhetorical trickery to talk about Labour the Labour Party being controlled by the unions, as if the Labour Party somehow ought to be this independent, autonomous organisation over which the unions then exercise influence. I mean, the, the, the unions are... I mean, the Labour Party is and always has been the political wing of the Labour movement. Um, so could you tell me a little bit more about um, the tensions between uh, the unions and the Labour Party, sort of historically, and um, maybe some sort of more modern history as well? Yeah, well, you're right to so say there's always been a, a tensions between... Part of it, the mass party and the trade unions in particular, and the Labour Party leadership, um, when particularly when they were trying to play a, a leading role in Parliament. I mean, there was a, a big breakdown in the Labour Party in the nineteen nineteen thirties in the face of the depression, um, when the Labour government uh, collapsed and Ramsay MacDonald took the party into coalition with the Conservatives. There was a huge division in the party then. 
um, about how to quite similar about now about how to cope with a massive deficit and, and, and austerity was imposed and quite similar to what's happening now but then the second world war came there was a huge socialization of the economy to fight the second world war labor went into coalition for a position of strength with the workers needing to, to you know everybody was united around the the anti-fascist effort and that that reunited everybody and then there was a huge success of 1945 when the labor government came in and was able to deliver many of the things that the trade unions wanted the nhs was created then um the on social security system, all kinds of things were doing, and nationalisation of key industries. So there's a huge unity in that period. But and did the, did the yeah. unions play a role in that sort of yeah. 1945 and period? What, how did they encourage those things and developments to happen? Well, it's the period in which, which the organised working class was strong uh, and acted collectively at times when the Labour Party was strong mm. and worked effectively together. But, the, but tensions developed at other times. And then, of course, we went into the 70s. In the 70s, the Labour movement was extremely strong in the 74 to 79 government. But similarly, that then broke down in the face of economic problems and recession. And the parliamentary leadership wanted to make cuts, the so-called IMF cuts that were made in the 70s, similar to what's been imposed on Greece now. You know, they were forced to make cuts by international pressure. And, the, and the, there was a huge amount of strike action, industrial disruption and so on that probably led to the defeat of the party in the 1979 election and the development of the... Margaret Thatcher coming to power, and you know, and the, and the trade unions were then severely um, attacked by the Conservative government. Their, their rights reduced, and organised labour became much weaker. And I think it's worth recognising that in the twenties and thirties, certainly in a working class area like Bermondsey, which I know well, or or you know, most 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 areas where ordinary working people lived. It wasn't as if the unions were a separate group, separate from everybody else, you know, causing strikes and stopping them going to work on the tube the way it feels now for some people. Everybody had the same interests because you'd have a very homogeneous community. And I can remember sort of local councillors, you know, in Birmingham saying, you know, what we want is what everybody we want. We want inside toilets. We want, mm. you know, bathrooms in the house. We want central heating. We want, you know, no leaks in the roof. We want a health service and we want some basic social welfare. Mm. So it, it, in a sense, there wasn't a great big difference between the workers wanting stuff for workers separate from everybody else. This was working class people, families, communities, trying to create the collective provision of the social goods that they needed that they didn't, couldn't afford individually. The political levy is the main source of income for the Labour Party. I mean, that's the key, that's the reason the unions remain critically important. Is up until recently, I mean, it's not clear now with the massive influx of individual members. But historically, the Labour Party's key source of income is the political levy from trade unions who have millions of members rather than tens of thousands of members, which is what individual membership parties have. So it is critically important. It is. I mean, there wouldn't be a Labour Party at all without the, the, without the political levy and the, the levy payers. And they have historically been you know, the bread and butter of the party. So we talked um, about how the or the role that the unions played um, uh, within the foundation of the Labour Party and um, over the course of its history. But you mentioned that there were other elements that were involved with the foundation of the party, the sort of more grassroots community elements. Um, how were they involved in the beginning and um, do they still play a role now? Actually, most of those original strands still exist. I went to a conference not very long ago for the Independent Labour Party, which still exists. It's 150 years old. It's still going. Um, the cooperative movement was part of the very original uh, Labour Party and the cooperative movement is still going, still operates as a, as a cooperative party. Uh, the Fabians were there right at the beginning. The Fabians are still there now. Yeah, um, who are the Fabians? Get, you still get Sorry. an extra vote for the leadership if you're a member of the Fabian Society. The you... Oh, good question. The Fabians are a group, and they were named after Fabius, who was some Roman who used to dither a lot. And the idea was that they were the people who weren't, you know, were going to move slowly and incrementally and weren't as keen on racing ahead like into reformists. socialism. So they were much more cautious. They wouldn't have liked the word reformist, but, but they were and still are the cautious element of the Labour Party, named after a cautious Roman. Um, of course, you wouldn't name a political grouping after a Roman these days, but uh, I guess that's how it was. Not unless you're Boris Johnson. Um, <laughs> the Women's Cooperative Guild, there were women's movements then. I mean, it's changed, you know, but there's been big struggles throughout the 70s and 80s uh, by women in the party. And we're now beginning, you know, there's much more women's organising again now as they used to be then. And the local branch the, the local constituency parties were formed as affiliates to the to, to the national party, um, and they had all sorts of people in them. Yeah. 
quite a few of these groups are what are called socialist societies, and they've, they've got a very similar formal status in the party to trade unions. So, so like the Fabians is an affiliate to the party, and it gets a vote in the same way, but they're very much small because they're organisations of thousands rather than millions of people. Their actual form, their practical weight is quite small. But they've also got the rights to still send delegates, and some of them uh, are quite active at local level. For example, the Socialist Educational Association uh, is very active at local level in my local party, and we'll have separate meetings, and we'll send people along to the, the constituents level meetings. Obviously, they talk about education issues. So there are quite a number of them. They've become more, some of the more like pressure groups or topic-based groups, I think, than perhaps some of them were the, the, the more kind of structured things they were originally. But there's quite a lot of them around, about a dozen or 15 of them, I think, are still around. And can any of these pressure groups or um, socialist societies join the Labour Party um, and kind of have influence over it? Does it operate as a platform in the party? Or how, what, what's the relationship between these sort of grassroots organisations and the, and the party itself? Well, well they can. Uh, you have to remember, though, that the um, most modern pressure groups are cross-party, and so they w- wouldn't want to. I mean, you can't... These groups have to consist uh, only of people who are either members of the party or members of no party. You can't be... Um, operators are kind of like most modern pressure groups are cross party, aren't they? So you couldn't, 38 Degrees couldn't affiliate or something because it contains people, members of other parties. Indeed, Compass, for example, now take, has members of the parties, so it couldn't form such an organisation. So by, because of the way politics is organised in the modern world, they're quite a restricted group of people and they tend to be groups of Labour Party members organised around particular I mean, interests. It is interesting and very slightly weird that. Victorian organisations have managed to survive all the way through into the modern era and the party hasn't managed to find a way yet of networking with, you know, a much wider group of social movements. So, you know, in a sense, this might be just sort of history and maybe something that that new members might want to think about how we change. Because I think that um, lots of new members probably might come from other movements. So I'm not totally new mm. to politics, obviously. Mm. Like I've, you know, been involved in Palestine activism um, at various different times, sort of like housing activism and things like that. Um, so I suppose it's thinking about how um, these new people who've been involved in movements can now start translating that into into the Labour Party and whether those things can um, work together at the same time. Um, so if you had joined, or if you have joined, like myself, as a um, a member of the party, um, what what's the first steps? Like, how do you, you know, apart from having your Labour card in your wallet, what does that mean for me as a Labour Party member? Well, the, the bottom level of the party is the Labour Party branch. And in most areas, a, a branch organises in an electoral ward, which is the area that elects councillors to the local council. In most areas, where there's a lot of party members, that's how it will be structured. In a few areas, a branch will cover a bigger area, a rural area, for example, where there aren't many Labour Party members. But um, And all party members can go along to branch meetings, have a say. If you've got local councillors, you, know, you can hold them to account. Uh, the branch will normally select the local council candidates for when local elections come around. And it will send, the branch sends people up to the higher levels in the party to actually represent the people in that branch. So for an ordinary branch member, an ordinary party member, the branch is the main area of the activity. And of course it organises other things, which may be more or less depending on how effective the branch is. Of course, a lot of branches have suddenly got a lot bigger, uh, so they've got more people. But we would typically, in my branch, we'd typically organise social events. We've had one for new members and we're having a quiz in a couple of weeks' time, you know, we, to raise money and so on. Um, we organise leafleting and electoral activity. It's where the election organisation takes place to knock on doors and, and on election day. So the branch is, is, for most parties, is the heart of the physical organisation of ordinary members. So you touched on a few things that, that, that you would do if you're an activist um, and leafleting for elections is one of them. Obviously in London we've got you know the mayoral elections coming up so that will be, I can imagine for the Labour Party that's going to be a fairly big um, you know, source of activity. But in between elections, you know, five years apart, what are the branches doing? Because there's, there, isn't the, there isn't anyone to support well, at that time. Uh, elections aren't five years, but most years there are elections because remember a lot of elections are local. So in most years there are elections. It's probably true to say that electoral organisation is the biggest part of Labour Party activity currently. And I think there's a big question about whether that will change with some of what's happened recently. And if I'm entirely honest, I have to say that general political campaigning is not something you see as much of in the Labour Party as you might think. You know, the Labour Party is very, quite often very poor as a party in engaging in, in very active local campaigns. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, these days a lot of people 
participate in single-issue campaigns. Like that. And Labour Party members are often very active in those things. But the party as an organisation is not always at the forefront of that. Its members may be, but as an organisation doesn't. It finds it quite difficult, I think, for a number of reasons. I mean, for example, a lot of local campaigns will, to some extent, be against things the local council is doing. But we control the local council. And it's, there's an inherent tension in campaigning against your own councillors. So whilst members may well be there campaigning against something the council has done or against a planning issue or whatever it is, it's quite hard for the party's institution to do that. That they will tend to have private discussions with the councillors about what is wrong or different, and so on. So I think it's quite it's quite evil. Uh, but but that's not to say it doesn't happen. I mean, and often people will send people along to marches, demonstrations, petition raising, all those things. I mean, that can be organised through the party. The, the mm. other thing that political parties have done, should mm. do, mm. sometimes do, some mm. of them do. Is, is education, political yeah. education, yeah. learning, you know, yeah. which could be anything from speakers, debates, discussions, conversations with the local council yeah. about why you're doing it, yeah. getting the councillors to come and explain what's going on, getting MPs to come and explain what's going on. Some parties do that brilliantly. Some parties it's pathetic and boring. Yeah. Um, and there's just something about is that awake enough, alive enough, interesting enough? Yeah. Um, and I, you know, my advice for new members would be if it's not interesting enough go make it interesting yeah. you know if you want to hear things or learn things find ways of making that happen because people who've been in the party for a long time might not know that those things would be interesting or they might have learned them a long time ago or they might need a bit of livening up yeah well one thing i think new people could certainly bring to the party there does get there's a tendency to develop especially at times when the party's perhaps not being very strong to talk to each other and not to bring people in from outside i mean quite often you go to party meetings and everybody's agreeing with each other, which is all very nice and cosy, but that's often because we don't actually bring anybody in who might disagree or have a different point of view. Um, and I think that's something that may be, may be, may be growing. There's been quite a high level of consensus in the party over the last decade and a reluctance to rock the boat. That's been a feature of the way the party was organised. Uh, quite contrary to the way it was <laughs> saying it. Now. That's actually, I think, in a way, that with the opening up of things has actually perhaps changed that. And, and whilst on the one hand you don't want the whole thing to descend into a lot of arguments and rows, on the other hand, I think some rather more... Just to give an example, my, my local party's had somebody coming and talking about refugees and the refugee crisis and somebody talking about the trade union bill. Now, they're both important topics, um, but it did almost consist of us saying how wonderful we were and how horrible the Tories were, but not really thinking about broader questions of how exactly we engage the electorate who might not agree with all of this, uh, is not at the forefront of that discussion. I, I certainly would welcome, and I think I hope bringing in new people who have not been around a long time might actually lead to a wider range of views about both what we might think and what we might do. Yeah, it's interesting. You're touching on the thing that I've always found most frustrating as a party member, actually, that even in, I mean, branch culture does really vary from place to place and from time to time. But even in branches where political education work was quite strong, where local campaigning work was quite strong, there tends to be, a, a historically, there tends to be a deference around sort of big strategic questions, whatever the, the project of the leadership is at a given moment. Mm. You don't tend to get big debates, real debates around political strategy, you know, around the strategy of the party, which I think... I think is quite has is quite frustrating at times, and it doesn't have to be that way. But let's say you were, um, you know, you're saying that the the main activity is doing sort of supporting um, elections and leafleting, and let's say I go out and start talking to people on the doorstep about, you know, why the Labour Party is great and other people should join. But also at the same time, knowing that the Labour Party itself doesn't actually support any local campaigns, what what are you? What's the message that you're saying to people then? Like, is it just the sort of national message that the, the branches of the Labour Party just translate on doorsteps, or are there local particular issues that um, you're saying, well, we can support you with this? Like, what can you actually do for a local person if you knock on their door and say, you know, you should support the Labour Party? So, see, a political party is sort of a network, and within it, you can find what you want to find. You know that hippie slogan, which is bring what you want to find. Um, there's something about new people can make out of the political party, out of the network, out of the contacts, what they want to make out of it. You will find inside the Labour Party people you really agree with and whom you feel at home with. And then you'll find some other people you don't really agree with and don't feel at home with. And that will be, you know, because there'll be this great spectrum of people who think very different things. And I think the question is, is what can be done with that. I mean, in the past, there have been times, you know, I mean, I, again, you know, just from the history, you know, in, in when the Bermondsey Labour Party started off in the 1920s, it had a cricket club and a football club and a tea dance and a lecture thing and children's 
parties and playgrounds and trips to the seaside and you know it was the social life of the place so we're a long way away from that now and I think sometimes the social side of it can be a bit miserable but there's nothing stopping the possibility of people deciding to do all sorts of things that haven't been thought of yet but it probably needs making but let but let's say, for example, um, I am against the demolition of council, uh, like council housing in a Labour borough and a Labour council has made that decision. I'm a Labour Party activist and I'm against that decision. If I'm going out and knocking on doors saying, you know, you should support the Labour Party, am I allowed to say that? Or, you know, is that like a, against the party line? And I, I would be Well, perched. the first thing you would do, if that's what you're worried about, the first thing you would do is try to work within the part to change the policy of the council. I mean, you don't just accept mm. that's, the, that's what the council is doing, that's leadership. Doing, I have to support you. Opposing the point, the whole point of joining a democratic political party is to try the parties to get some influence over its policy and its program. I mean, if there's a, it's a really difficult question. I mean, the, you know, the, La the Labour Party is not sort of technically a democratic centralist organisation, which requires that all, that having taken uh, that ha this policy having been formulated, all members explicitly sign up to it, but. Um, you wouldn't. It wouldn't be considered appropriate or acceptable to go out as a representing the Labour Party, opposing Labour Party policy. I mean, you can campaign around the policy against the policy. But how? But how would you um, influence the policy? Let's say you didn't agree with the um, local policy and you wanted to change it. How? How would you go well, about? You would, you would take a motion to your branch, and your branch. What does that mean? That means you would. You. I mean, one of the things the branches. I mean, branches like any, like any meeting of any organisation really. Um, you know, have a, you know, allow members to bring motions which you can vote on, and if they're passed, they officially become the policy of the branch, whatever. And you do can, they, have to, and do they have to listen? Let's say I say, okay, I want um, 20,000 council houses built in Southwark, and this is my motion, and then I, you know, corral loads of people from the branch, and they all support it. Does it does that no, become the policy, and then no. suddenly there are twenty thousand? <laughs> <No. laughs> like, at what level, you know, is that actual real influence? I think you're right to right to be sceptical about it. It's not really quite. I mean, that isn't in practice much the way it happens. I mean, it isn't that. I mean, if there's some particular relatively small thing where, where the council's got wrong or so, on, then you know you might you know, or, or something the council's not paying attention to. I don't know. We have one about a local zebra crossing or something. It's not a fundamental policy. Right? Then I think you can probably get quite a lot of leverage by using the party as a means of bringing that you know, to council attention or putting pressure on. I think you're talking about bigger strategic issues that are being decided by, say, a Labour council's cabinet. It's not likely to be that responsive to whatever just happens to come up from the branches. But of course, there are other opportunities at the higher level. There will be, you know, quite substantial discussions about local party policy. Again, culture varies. I mean, some parties are more democratic than others in practice, and it may well depend upon how entrenched the party is, how hard it's got to fight to win the elections, and so on. So, like in most things, there is a dynamic to this. It's not just a, a mechanical thing. And um, you know, think, think that it's just about passing a majority resolution, that will all happen, I think is a bit simplistic. And it's also about the nature of the debate. Yeah. After all, the people who are running the council will mm. be Labour Party people yeah. too. They'll yeah. want to listen to you because you come from the same movement. They'll want to have a debate about it. Mm. They will be struggling with making these really impossible, horrible decisions. So it probably won't help them hugely for people to just, you know, shout at them because they've got to make cuts when they've got no choices. But there will be space for mm. that debate to be an interesting and exciting one and if you you know if you've got good ideas the chances are they'll listen to you just like you know any friends listen to you yeah. when you've got good ideas but it's not really a relationship of friends though is it because what is the power structure between like the branch members and the councils like if 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 the councils have the power and you're just an individual branch well, member ultimately the with, branches yeah. choose the yeah. councils you choose the councillors and oh, so the right, ultimate okay. the ultimate sanction yeah. the ultimate sanction would be to nominate oh, different okay, councillors right, okay. and you get them elected okay. i mean look then you so they, they <laughs> i mean that's what the party is isn't it, it chooses candidates and, get, and puts the labor in, right, and get them okay. elected so it's not it's not like people just go off and disappear off and and you know they don't need you in any case I, I say, these people aren't a, a separate class in a sense they are yeah. uh, although people can get quite detached from the party and differences there can be differences in most cases the people who are council will have been party activists not that long ago and so it's not it's not so there'll be people like you who've got harder decisions to make that's all yeah that's not that, i didn't realize how, that was the relationship so basic and so basically if you have a branch that um decides policy um or you're able to influence the policy of that branch you could in some senses elect councillors who are more aligned to the politics of your branch so of that course, would be the yes. way of creating influence but, but again i wouldn't yes. overstate because this gets a very people get very agitated about this don't 
aren't we, and also in relation to MPs, and are we going to deselect people? And yeah, we're people not going to not talk about deselects. No, but but I think the sound tends to overemphasize like the mechanics. I mean, people are, very, people are often very loyal to their councils, even if they disagree with them. Well, I think my experience is there's but, a big cultural difference yeah. in, when you're talking about local government, yeah. when you're talking about parliament, because yeah. the, the dynamics we're talking about also apply to, the, I mean, the next level up from the branch is the constituency yes. party, and the constituency party chooses the MP. And there, it is it is not at all uncommon for there to be a significant culture gap between yeah. the MP, who spends most of their time in Westminster, and the constituency party and their objectives. In my experience, it's very unusual. Like, I mean, being a councillor is a pretty thankless job. It's not fun. It, in my experience, it's very unusual that, it, that, that you will get a council, you will get councillors voting in a way and supporting programmes which are which are very much at odds with the kind of general in, you know, wishes and intentions of the people in their branch and, and which are really at odds with the culture of their branch. Right. But I think that's so. I think that's partly why, I mean, you know, deselection of councillors has never been much of an issue. Selection of councillors isn't much of an issue because people don't even bother doing it if they're really out of It's quite often hard to find them, to be perfectly yeah, no. honest. Councillors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had difficulty finding three people, even though we got to elect them, because not, it's not a very attractive job being a local councillor at present time. Where what is the job of a local councillor? Like, let's, let's, say, let's say I wanted to be a local councillor uh, it, firstly, is that a possibility? Like, as a new like Labour activist, like, could you become a Labour councillor? And if you were a Labour councillor, what would you do? And what's your relationship then to the constituency Labour Party? So I think you might have to have been a party member for a year. But in I'm my, not in, in my experience, sure. if you go to every branch meeting for a year, you'll be asked to stand as a councillor. <laughs> <laughs> that is what They're probably not the case now. There's a lot more members. It certainly has been the case <laughs> in the past. Because this is an unpaid job that's mainly in the evenings. So, you know, an ordinary backbench councillor is going to meetings two or three nights a week in the council they're doing things in their in their branch in their ward they're finding out what people want they're knocking on doors they're doing surgeries they're giving people advice um they are working very hard um but it's in, in like in a voluntary capacity and then from within the group of councillors a few councillors are chosen to be the cabinet or the executive and they are paid a little bit um but I'm not sure you'd want to live on it particularly. Mm. Um, different councils pay because they have to run the whole council okay. and they have to make all the big decisions and spend a budget of 100 million quid or whatever it is. So, But that would be their job then? But that would be... It's not always full-time, but for lots of people it is a full-time mm. thing. Okay. Sorry, I was, and it's and you can see this not this particular currently at the present time when there's a lot of cuts to made and so on. This is not either makes you popular or is necessarily particularly attractive. So you can, it's not necessarily easy to get good quality people in particular. Um, and it, also, councillors do tend to be quite un, unbalanced in their composition. I don't mean in their um, gender composition necessarily, although it is. But um, it's not something that people in midlife tend to do a lot. You tend to find that so there's, 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 over, there's an overweighting of reti- either retired people or of people who are uh, on the way up and hoping to go MPs. And you also. meet the most Because it's difficult to combine. I gave up. I was a councillor in the early 90s. I gave up once we had a family because it was impossible to combine a full-time job, being a father and being a local councillor. I met this councillor recently who was the um, cabinet member for children in one of the London boroughs. And she was talking about the job of of the council as being the parent of all the looked after children, the children in care. And she knew personally the names and what was happening to all 160 looked after children in the borough. And she treated her job as having to be the parent to that 160 kids. You know, people do extraordinary things for mm. that council. Yeah, they do. It's true, actually. I've, I've always said, I mean, the 90s, I always used to say, you know, I used to split my time between sort of local Labour Party work and things like Reclaim the Streets. And I always used to say to the anarchists, I'm just, you know, whatever your caricatures may be about you know, Labour Party members and local government, the most self-sacrificing, the most kind of heroic people I've ever met in politics are Labour councillors because mm. it is an incredibly hard job and it is just I mean what is that their job is to keep local the whole infrastructure of local government going just to keep it going the entire but, infrastructure well it's not too negative though because I enjoyed it a great deal when I did it I mean, I mean yeah, it's do hard it, work, do it do it but you do feel you do, you do it, <laughs> go on Molly. I mean you, it is a, it, you know um you have to be quite thick-skinned about it, but I think actually it's very worthwhile. You learn an awful lot. And oh, I'm a, a secondary school teacher in Elephant and Castle, well, so my skin's quite thick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, so, yeah. and of course, a lot of MPs will have been councillors. I mean, many, many. It's a common common step is as it is for our MP, council leader, and then and then 
MP because you can show you run something. Um, so we've talked about um, the the branch level um, and the local council. Is the next sort of level up from that the um, the constituency, the constituency Labour, Party. Labour Party, the CLP? Yeah, right. the CLP. Sorry, so what's, it's what's the CLP? It stands for Constituency Labour Party, and there is a Labour Party organised in every parliamentary constituency. That's for the area that elects an MP to Westminster. Not sure if Scotland's organised on Scottish. I think it's in Scotland. It might be organised on Scottish. Uh, Parliament land. Oh, we but, don't know that. Do uh, we? I'm not sure, Sorry. but um, but certainly that's what, and that's a very important part of the party. The branches are combined together and form a um, a, a constituency party, and the constituency party is run. Uh, its main structural element is something called the general committee or GC, and that consists of delegates from the branches mostly. People have been elected at, usually at the annual general meeting of the branch to go and represent that branch. But so we talk about a constituency party, and then above that, so we. As well as at local level, you then have the region, or in Scotland and Wales, the national parties. Um, to be honest, it's sometimes a mystery what goes on there. They have a, they have a regional committee which will organise things that need to be organised at regional level, and there will be a regional conference, won't there, as well, at which people decide things. In in some areas, the regions party don't seem to make, make a lot of sense because they exist only they don't there is no regional government structure, and so it's a bit it's just a, a talking shop, really. I think. In London, it's much more important because, of course, you've got the London Mayor and the London Assembly, and they would they would uh, control that process, manage that process. And in Scotland and Wales, of course, they're important because the whole country is. That discussion is very live at the moment as to how independent those parties should be. Historically, Scotland and Wales have been treated much as if they were just regions of the of the British Labour Party. Um, you know, and, and Scotland could not take proper decisions about Scotland independently of the UK party. But that's clearly up for grabs at the moment. There's a lot of discussion taking place and a degree of independence is being created for that. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Um, I just wanted to clarify um, what is exactly is the role of the constituency Labour Party. So it, it, it sends delegates to the conference. It elects the local MP. Selects. selects, selects. Well, it selects a candidate, obviously. Yeah. Oh, oh, right. Yeah. Okay. So it, select, so it selects a candidate for that, um, yeah. for that area. Yeah. And... Anything else? Like, is that is that it? Is well, it just send, the, they can send resolutions to national conference. Once upon a time, that was huge mm. because conference used to decide the policy of the Labour Party. That's not quite 
so clear now. But once upon a time, that really did make a difference. And some of the arguments about democratising the Labour Party are all about whether conference should have a bigger say in Mm. determining what the party policy is. So, Mm. you know, watch Mm. this space. Well, the cost is obviously... obviously Perhaps one thing we should have said is that... um, as far as I'm aware, no branches of the Labour Party have staff, and um, I can't imagine that many have premises. So that it's essentially an entirely voluntary activity, often run very locally. Many constituency parties do have offices, and some of them have staff, or at least a, you know, a paid organiser, for example, bigger ones. So they're actually a more substantive organisational unit of the party. Often, in my constituency, the election campaigns and things are run at the constituency level, essentially, in terms of deciding who does what and where people go and all those kind of things. Um, some areas it's a little bit different because uh, the level above, what, what you have in a big city, for example, I don't know, somewhere like Norwich or Sheffield or somewhere, you'll have a district party. And quite often a lot of this organisation work takes place at that level because it makes more sense to organise for the whole council area and, and, and the bigger level. So they'll tend to have the offices and so on. But, but generally speaking, the constituency party is a key organisational unit of the party that will actually you know, make things actually happen in terms of... So and big ones will have a, a paid party organiser. Yeah, organizer. Who, would, who would hire that person and how would you become um, that person? Well, I think legally they're all formally employed by the National Party for, for legal and payroll reasons, but, but usually they'll be chosen at local level. It often depends who's paying for it, to be honest. I mean, ours is largely paid for by the Labour councillors through a voluntary contribution, so they probably have quite a big say in who that is. Mm. But in other places, parties actually you know, raise the funds um, to actually employ themselves. I don't know whether the places where trade unions provide somebody would have more say. It, it varies, I think, and a lot of parties don't, of course. A lot of parties historically have not had any staff. It's purely voluntary. It's purely voluntary, and so it does vary from place to place. Mm-hmm. But if you have staff, I'd say that's where most people have staff, I would think, at the constituency level, a few at district level instead. Is that not that's right? Yes, I think that's it? right. And I mean, also this year, for example, both... This was, it was, this was, these were only really... F- sort of formal process. Well, no, in the case of the leadership, it was only a sort of ceremonial process. In the case of the, selecting the mayoral candidate for London, it was serious. It was, it was at an all, all members' meetings of the constituency parties that those nominations were made. So the constituency party, it wasn't GC, but it was still at the level of the constituency party. I mean, historically, really, historically, I mean, if you go, I, mean, I, I suppose I'm thinking about quite a long time now, but... Historically, sort of what it meant to be an activist in the party was to get involved at the GC level, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, to be an ordinary yeah. members would, would, would show up at a branch meeting occasionally. But what it meant to be an activist was to get involved at the GC level. And exactly as Mark said, that, that was really where the politics happened. And mm-hmm. in the days when conference determined policy, it, because it was, the C, it was the GC, it was the CLPs rather than branches or other units that sent motions to conference, that was hugely important. And... Um, the CLPs and con- uh, cons- mm. traditionally uh, the CLP is the level at which national policy gets to, gets discussed locally. Yeah, what what's happened? I think if you slightly historically again, of course, is before the reforms that I suppose as far back as the eighties and through the nineties. The party had a very indirect decision-making structure. So you go to a branch meeting, but everything else was decided by sending delegates to things. And it was GC delegates who chose the local parliamentary candidate, for example. Those people, quite a big group of people, but nevertheless, not ordinary members. Um, and it's over to, uh, and, the, and as far as the party had any choice in the leader, and once that once that opened, even when the first leadership elections were held uh, beyond the parliamentary party, the, the, the constituency GC voted who that party's whole vote would be cast for, a block vote. Now, what you've seen is the, as, uh, because expectations have changed and you've had a democratisation, I think you actually see more and more decisions taken by the individual members. It's got pushed further and further down. So now in the leadership election, individuals all had votes, you know. And similarly, in the selection of parliamentary candidates, there is a, a meeting or postal vote which which every member has an individual vote. So we've got, in that sense, it's become more democratic and, and pushed down. There's less... Uh, control from from selected activists. Now, um, ironically, a lot of that was done uh, because it was expected it would make the choices more moderate, I think, by the people who were pushing well, those changes in the 80s and 90s. Well, this is a really uh, important... And what's happened is, is quite interesting. Well, that's a really important point. I mean, his, it's debatable whether how far that's got that constituted democratisation yeah, because okay. there's been a sort of... I mean, the... I mean, it's, it's probably worth going through some of the, the, these keys kind of constitutional debates, isn't it? So, I mean, up until the end of the 70s, you have a situation in which, in which, firstly, national conference has never, national conference decisions have never been binding on, on the leadership, or on the manifesto or on government. And the, leadership, the leader is chosen solely by the parliamentary party. Uh, and then it's at the end of the 70s you get the first big surge of, of demands for real democ- for more democratisation of the party. And the kind of compromise which comes out of that is the creation of the Electoral College. 
um, which um, for, to elect the leader, which gives one third of the votes to the MPs, one third to the trade union section. And again, there's a whole other set of debates about how they distribute their votes, about whether they're, they're a block vote or whether they represent the, their membership's different preferences. And, and then there's the uh, constituency section, who's given one third of the vote for the first time in 1980 for the leadership. And again, as Mark said, initially, that's just a process of, I mean, it's the GCs who then decide how the constituency party will vote in that electoral college for the leadership. Leadership. And then what happened and what happens in the 90s is there's a process whereby, I mean, really a lot more power is centralized with mm. the leadership. And then it's a, it's kind of the, hypothetically devolved to the membership, to individual members. But really, but, but part of what's going on there is the central leadership of the party really wants to weaken the activist base in the constituency party. So it's the constituency, it's really an attack, it's as much as anything an, an attack on the constituency yes. parties yeah. as, as any real attempt to empower the membership. And I think... And that was pretty much the case until very recently. That's yeah. the situation that obtained. Uh, what, I mean, and one of the things that happened over the past twenty years is that, you know, as Marx described very accurately, I mean, the sort of political life of local parties, especially around the constituency parties, really sort of declined. I mean, partly because they, they were no longer there wasn't a, a local institution for people to get involved in, which really had any authority within the party. That essentially. Um, most of the powers that the, that the CLPs had had were kind of you know, abrogated to other places. You talked about that there's a relationship between um, the constituency Labour Party um, and the conference. Um, I was wondering if you could explain what that relationship is. And if I become um, a member of the constituency Labour Party and, you know, vote on cer certain motions and send delegates to conference, is there any real influence from the constituency Labour Party up to conference? Um, yeah. Well, um, it's perhaps just worth going back a bit. What, what, you only heard of the Labour Party conference, and the Labour Party conference consists of delegates both from uh, CLPs, local Labour parties, and from um, affiliated organisations, trade unions. And in fact, the way it's structured at the moment, those two groups each have half of the vote at Labour Party conference. Historically, trade unions used to have almost all of the vote at Labour Party conference, but over time that's been adjusted, and we have a situation now where it's uh, structurally split 50-50. And the... Um, and formally speaking, the party conference is the sovereign body of the party and its decisions are, you know, are binding. But in reality, I think that one thing that emerged was, I think it was realised that it was a very crude process trying to pass resolutions, at least how came personal compositing where different people's versions were brought to him on version. And um, in a way, having a yes-no vote on things didn't, if the party leadership didn't agree with it, it was, I think it was quite difficult to make any of that stick. And uh, the idea developed in the 80s, I think, in fact, it arose out of some work, uh, we did work back in the old Labour Coordinating Committee in the 80s, developing some of these ideas, wanted a more discursive and, and, and open process of policy making. And the intentions behind it were, were very well intentioned. Something called the National Policy Forum was created with so-called policy commissions that brought together um, a smaller groups of people, but nevertheless all elected from the different parts of the party, including the parliamentary party in that case and, and, and the government or the, the, the um, leadership to discuss and try and thrash out proper policy positions in areas of policy, like foreign policy or the economy and so on. And in principle, you can see that that ought to work very well, or ought to work better than just having to pass some resolution that's emerged out of things. And those, and those policies were then put back to conference to approve. It has to be said, though, that it didn't work very well partly because of the timing, because at the time when these quite sensible reforms were introduced, it was also a time when the Blair leadership was taking over the party and didn't really want, you know, wanted to control the policy of the party and wasn't really interested too much in what activists thought. So this process became entirely tokenistic. Um, unamendable, very bland statements were actually what emerged in the policy commissions, and then particularly the Labour government then took absolutely no notice whatsoever. And the process fell into discredit with party members because they felt that what, what they said, and there was quite a, a substantial gathering process of ideas into these policy commissions and so on, they were just completely ignored. So actually the whole process was brought into discredit and, and was near collapse. Now, it's still going though, and there have been reform, there are proposed reforms to it, uh, which are not yet fully worked through. And in principle, I think you can see this mechanism of gathering ideas from across the party, having local discussions and so on, and feeding into a kind of discursive process, and then either um, perhaps different positions emerging from that being put to party conferences and could actually open up ways of doing it. I think it would be close to what we intended. I mean, the issue has always been who controls the agenda, in yes. a way. I mean, when party conference was supposed to be sovereign, actually, you know, the, 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 the party um, bureaucracy used to be working really hard to control which motions got debated in which order and which trade unions were composited with who else and trying desperately to control that process didn't always go right. But usually, you know, the leadership of the party managed to, to, to keep a lid on what might otherwise happen. 
what then happened, I think, as as mm. as Mark says, is I mean, there used to be a thing called the National Executive. I mean, there probably still is still the National Executive Committee, yeah, which used to be hugely powerful, yeah, because that was where power sat in terms of the the, the central organisation of the Labour Party. Under Blair, it sort of shifted towards number 10 and the leadership of the party so that all those things tended to get controlled by the media system. And what happened to the Labour Party conference, in a sense, was that 24-hour media and spin-doctoring-ness took over and it was felt that this was no longer a debate between party members trying to work out what they thought, but had become a sort of media presentation of the Labour Party product oh. to the people of Britain and therefore had to be entirely controlled and, you know, made as as slick as an advertising uh, thing. <laughs> and more you, brands than substance. You lost yes. all that yeah. sense of being able to have an argument with your with your co- yeah. colleagues, and it just became how do we sell the Labour Party to the public? Yeah. And it was all around the yeah. leadership. The speeches still think, took place, but they moved into the fringe. And the nice thing, in a sense, now is that that's all fallen to yeah. bits, yeah. and so we will have a much more engaging debate. However, of course. You know, the press will then present that as chaos and nobody knows what they're doing and it not being a slick advertising uh, presentation the way that, 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 that they're used to it being. That is a very good point. That is something new activists like yourself would better be ready for because they will, I mean, the historic, I mean, one of the things which, one of the conditions of possibility really for the whole Blair project in the Labour Party was the experience in the 1980s of what, you know, what was experienced by the membership as, you know, intense debate over real matters of real, you know, political importance, a kind of life and death importance, but genuine democratic debate was just routinely presented by, was just presented by the media exactly, it was just chaos, disunity, you know, a, a disruption. It was just, and, and it was, and I mean, really the leadership just sort of gave up by the early 90s on trying to present democracy as democracy and just accepted that if, if you had any real democracy in the party, the press would just present it as a negative thing, as disunity, and that they had the power to do that and that power couldn't really be challenged and so you had to do exactly what Sue's described. So, and that is coming. That is that is going to be coming down the road in the next three years without yeah. a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, because I think that um, from my impression, surely that um, disunity is going to come out as part and parcel of of Corbyn being the leader because you're going to have some people from the sort of like old guard of Labour and then you're going to have other people, you know, coming with this sort of sharing the ideas that Corbyn had. You know, he used his first speech to say you know, I wholeheartedly support refugees and then went on the refugee demonstration as soon as he'd been elected. And that's going to, like, be quite different, probably, from what some people in the Labour Party think with their kind of, like, anti-immigration mugs and, you know, the, the, the general kind of electoral or electorate position on immigration, for example. But is there possibility, like, within the conference for this debate or has like the structure of being conference changed so much that it wouldn't be possible to change the way it's organized now i think there's two things and i think it's a really important point i mean throughout the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s there were huge debates across the labor party which weren't treated by the media as anything other than just really interesting mm. they weren't treated as catastrophic or a failure or you know or or people being disorganized they were just treated as this is a really interesting conversation and people would you know fight very hard for the things they believed in and even cabinet members didn't know they were going to win a vote in conference and you know actually the lib dems are still doing it and managing to 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 make it work so the question for the party is not simply how would we organise a conference to make that debate possible? But how would we engage with the media such that we can present that debate in a positive light? And can we persuade the British people that a party that is questioning and arguing and trying to sort out what it thinks is not chaotic and stupid, but actually creative and in a process of discovery and exploration, that that is more credible than simply towing, you know, a pre-existing party line that nobody quite agrees with. Because I think that that's the thing that has turned people off for such a long time, is this thing of party lines, is this thing that politicians don't really mean what they say, that they are just presenting this line, and Corbyn has disrupted that drastically, and in lots of ways that presents so many, feels like it presents so many opportunities for people of all sorts of persuasions on the left which I think is probably why so many people you know have got involved I suppose it's just like the way that I'm thinking about it like realistically is the structures that you described the Labour Party are so complex um, and to somebody coming in for the first time 
on the one hand, you've got these really complicated power structures. On the other hand, you've got these massive ideas about uh, migration, about student fees, about reducing the deficit. Um, and, you know, is there a way that can um, allow those those parts to come together or is the structure actually just going to kind of overwhelm and that bureaucracy going to crush that really exciting movement ideas element because even as you're talking about the structure I'm just a bit like yeah. oh yeah. god and that's, <laughs> big, <laughs> that's, that's a question, like yeah. exhausting absolutely <laughs> big question that we all don't know the well, answer to but Jeremy's right what you have to remember is that after the end you know during the 80s the Labour Party just was seen as tearing itself to pieces, whether it did or not, was presented by the media as doing so. And by 1997, they were just so tired of losing that they would buy anything mm. in order to have some semblance of a possibility of the ideas that we could, you know, that were agreed about to be able to, to be turned into government. And in a sense, the Blair consensus didn't just come about because, you know, he was, a, you know, suddenly a new hero arose. It came because suddenly a new hero arose and everybody else went, oh, for God's sake, let's just do something. Mm. And I think there were therefore two sets of questions. One is, you know, how do we balance this thing about getting elected versus having the right ideas? Mm. Because if we simply have the right ideas and just, lose for 20 years mm. is is that okay mm. and i think that's that's for the new members there's this whole question about what are we doing this for and what are we willing to compromise on and how are we going to get this balance and do we want to just write down loads and loads of good things but not be able to convince the public or what is the nature of our debate with the public now but I suppose like Corbyn's been elected with certain ideas that he said he's not going to compromise on. And um, there's probably quite a big gap between the electorate currently and like some of Corbyn's ideas. So obviously within the Labour Party, people are going to say, you know, well, we need to get elected. My I don't, my personal view is that um, Anthony, Andy Burnham or anyone else like that wouldn't have got elected anyway, um, you know, five years on. So it seems to me it's better to be like a really good opposition that actually has the possibility of um, shifting the electorate's ideas and shifting some of the debate to a more left, uh, like more progressive um, terms of debate, which might mean that in the future you'd have someone representing you um, in Parliament that actually more clearly represented your views. But, you know, Labour Party exists to be elected. So there's going to be surely a massive tension there. And I don't know if it's possible for those things to work together and whether people should compromise because Corbyn might lose. Well, he would, if he compromised drastically on the things that he stood for, it would be difficult for me to sort of stay within the Labour Party because I don't have any like loyalist roots to the party. Because I don't, you I know. want to come back to the question, the question you raised a moment ago, Holly, about you know, whether the complexity of these structures will frustrate any possible radicalism. And I think, well, historically, it doesn't. I mean, it's no, this, the party's no more complex now than it was 80 years ago. I mean, it's, the, the complexity changes, but it's always been complex. And historically, um, historically, I mean, one of the, you know, I mean, I can remember when, you know, one of the things it meant to be an activist in the party, even an activist, even an activist from the far left, was, to, you know, to have a kind of robust understanding of these processes and to be prepared to engage with them. I think, you know, the answer to the question is no, there's nothing inherent in any of this stuff which will frustrate democracy, but it will depend on activists, as sort of activists of your sort of cohort, being willing to some extent to change their own culture, which is very much a sort of culture of instant gratification, of instant expression, and be prepared actually, you know, to, to get involved with those things. <laughs> I mean, to you know, I like instant gratification. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. He's generalising. To be honest, the stuff we're talking about, it's not that complicated. Yeah. It's a bit complicated, but it's not that complicated. We've explained yeah. it all basically in 45 minutes. Yeah. Like, if that's too much for you to sit the, yeah. then no, it's, it's, then we're fucked. You know, then the Labour Party... I think it's a very good question, though, because I think, I think what, what isn't, what the party is very ill-suited. Uh, in fact, yeah, you're right, that if there is an emergence of, of, of radical politics, that, that you can just as well articulate those to the Labour Party structures as anything else, right? It's not the, the structures have changed more as a result of the politics than the politics have driven, you know, the, 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 the structures have bound them in. However, I think there is a big question mark for many of who have been around a long time. And, and it's why there's, an, I think, the suspicion with the wrong way. There's an apprehension about what's meant by all these incoming members is, are they just fly-by-night people? Are they people who paid three quid to join or maybe, maybe joined up? 
Um, and they're used to the kind of the politics of the modern pressure group where you support something because you support it and sign that petition or whatever, but then you're off again. And one thing that I think perhaps uh, one thing that's worth saying is, is what you said, what can you do in the party? Does it matter if you take a different line? In truth, not much is going to happen to you if you say you disagree with what the party says. Nothing at all. And people do it all the time. The one thing that is an absolute bottom line in the Labour Party, though, is you can't support uh, candidates of other parties. Mm. You can't be a member of other parties as well. It seems to have caused confusion among a few people, not least the government minister who didn't seem to realise you couldn't be in the Conservative <laughs> Labour Party. But, um, but um, yeah, you, you know, the, there's an absolute no-no to support in any way candidates of other parties. That's the one thing where it comes together. When the candidate's chosen, you must support that candidate, or at least stay silent. And I think this often causes, uh, for, for somebody like me who's been around a long time, that goes without saying, even if the candidate's someone you totally disagree with didn't didn't choose, uh, you have to support them. But I often find younger people often say, well, why would, you, why would you spend your time, why would you waste time supporting somebody you don't agree with? I'll go off and support the Green candidate or the Liberal or something. And that, that actually is quite a cultural problem, I think, for people. They have to understand that that's not, not possible. That's and you, and the you, theory, you, but lots of party members vote tactically when it's... Well, vote secretly, but going out... Because the out question voting. just that was leading from what we were just talking about is that obviously um, there's lots of pe people who are joining because they've been part or felt they've been part of an exciting social movement. And, um, you know, what we're saying here is actually that the Labour Party's quite complicated and at times quite boring that leafleting is not as fun and interesting as maybe going on a demonstration or doing an action and things like that and I suppose what what I'm interested in is is there the possibility that you um, can be part of the Labour Party and you know as you said organise a poetry evening or an arts thing or go on demonstrations but explicitly it would be a Labour Party event like how much of this discipline what does discipline mean, basically, within the party? How much can you do within it? So I think the answer is all of those things are possible, but it might not have occurred to the people who are already in the party to do those things, so they might have to learn from the new arrivals about different ways of doing things. And doing that, you know, and there's some sort of grace and some generosity on all sides that's probably needed mm. because if they see new people just turning up and taking over and sidelining them and excluding them, then they'll feel hurt. Mm. On the other hand, they're used to doing things the old way and there's new ideas coming in. I mean, the same thing happened in 79 when loads and loads of young people joined the party. They changed the nature of it and women and gay people and black people moved into the party and said, whoa, we're not doing this this boring old way, we're going to do new stuff. And there was quite a revolution that took place then and that's a long time ago now. But I think the opportunity is there, but not if the new members just sit and say, oh, this is a bit dull. I think it needs something new could be created if people will invest their energy. And I think it's the Mark's point about flyby nights. It's not just about whether you sit and go, oh, God, is this all there is? It's whether it wouldn't take much to say, hey, why don't we have a festival and get it organised, but it will take the energy to do that. I mean, my practical suggestion to new members would be you've got to be prepared to go and sit through a couple of branch meetings and be bored and get a sense of the culture and then go and start making suggestions at the third one. <laughs> so that's what would be my basic suggestion. But no, but I think that's actually a really good point because for me, you know, I'm thinking about like, let's say I went to some, you know, some branch meetings. You don't want to go in there and be like, this is what I think should happen. I will organise this. Do you think the best way is to sort of go observe for a while, like build some relationships, get some trust, and then you sort of start saying, well, maybe this is something that we can do? Because I know that some people have had the experience that they've been going to branch meetings and saying, you know, why aren't we going to support um, this housing demonstration or, you know, this refugee march or whatever it might be? And the response to be that being overwhelmingly kind of negative, basically. Um, so, yeah, how, how, how would you go about that? Well, I'd say that a couple. Give it a couple. Don't let you. Don't give it six months. That you're just bored and frustrated. But exactly, don't turn up at your first meeting telling people who've been doing it for years how they should be doing their politics. And the other thing is to make find friends. Find either take them in with you, or find other people who seem to be like minded and phone each other up and go, "Hey, what did you think about that meeting? Well, what do you think? And if you propose that, maybe I could, you know, so that you're not on your own doing this. So you've got a group of people who can help, and then and then do it with. With with generosity of spirit. I mean, the other okay. The other thing, I mean, the other question I think is about how you know how much of this is of all this is going to change now. Committed the leadership are to changing it, and I think um, <clears throat> I, I think they are the current leadership are absolutely committed to changing a lot of this. They are absolutely committed. They're not sure yet how they're going to do it, 
But there's no question in my mind. I mean, Corbyn doesn't, I don't think he cares that much if he becomes prime minister. He sees his historic mission as being to democratise the party and to some extent to complete the democratisation of the party that was kind of half done in the early 80s. And I think, I think, I think, I think almost everybody I've spoken to, especially sort of younger activists, doesn't really understand how absolutely committed the particular current within the party, which Corbyn represents, has been historically to that objective. I mean, they have seen for 30 years what they have believed is they were essentially, they got halfway there in the early 80s and they were frustrated. Um, for various reasons. So there's, there's no question that this is that there's no question that an awful lot of this is going to change. But how would you support that if you also thought that the Labour Party should become more democratic? What should an activist do to support Corbyn's kind of overall mission that and, and that current within the Labour Party well, right, that there should right, be more democracy? Right now, I think you do it probably you do, right now. I mean, to some extent, we have to wait and see what they come up with. We have to come we have to wait and come and see what, what the programme is going to be. I mean, there is I mean, they're going to I mean, they've said there's going to be some kind of commission into the demo, democratic structures of the party which will you know meet and report etc and i think in the meantime people do the most useful thing people could be doing would be getting just a feel for a sense of the party and its culture and its institutions but there is a wider point which we might not all agree about which is simply that it's not just a democracy inside the party or doing everything inside the party i think people coming in from outside movements have a better sense that no political party has got an absolute monopoly of wisdom and that there are you know people in lots of different political parties and lots of social movements movements who can all contribute something to a different better sort of society and I would be sad if you know with all these new people coming to the party everybody still says oh everything has to be done inside the party I think that we need bridges between political parties between parties and social movements between parties in different countries and the more we can get the leadership of any of of, of the political parties social democratic political parties to tr- to be willing to talk to each other and not fight each other, you know, this daft business where, you know, Labour defeats the Greens in Kemptown and the Greens defeat Labour and, you know, when there's all that common ground. So I'm hoping this isn't just going to be party supremacy. I'm hoping this is going to be the beginning of a much wider social movement. Definitely. And I think that that's what lots of people who have joined recently would be interested in doing because people are going to come from such diverse movements that actually they're well placed to build those relationships and to make those links between social movements. But I think I think as we've all touched upon, like it's about having a bit of generosity of spirit and a bit of openness on both sides that the historic Labour Party is not going to change overnight and neither is the Labour Party going to become a social movement overnight? But actually, if those two forces work together, then surely that's the way that we can kind of move forward and, you know, make some change. Uh, so thank you to everyone very much for all your um, helpful tips and uh, tricks for a new, part- uh, new member of the Labour Party. Thank you. Thank you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.